0: In the meantime, you can be opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, and uh, you folks who are guests with us, as you get your study sheet, if you would look at the top, you'll see that this is now the the 99th message in, in this short little series uh, in the book of Revelation. We, uh, we're obviously taking our time going through it because uh, just... real short period of time all this stuff is getting ready to happen on this planet and we the only thing we got to look forward to is all that anyway so there's no real rush but uh... we were kind of just moving our way through the book of revelation we were approaching it very doctrinally making sure that we understand exactly where everything fits and we will continue to do that but when we came to chapter 14 after we We did give some of the doctrinal implications of chapter 14 with regard to this group that you see in verse 1 that is referred to as the 144,000. We began to just look at this group of people, and they're a very significant group because of one thing, and that is they take the plan of God as it is revealed to them. And through the whole duration of the time that they are God's instruments to fulfill his plan, they fulfill it to the fullest every single moment of every single day. And that's something that cannot be said of any other group of people that God has ever sought to use as a part of his plan. You look at the nation of Israel, and goodness, did they blow it. And so then God wants to use the church... You don't even need me to go there because we blow it majorly big time. And we're especially living at a time where it's blown pretty majorly because according to Revelation chapter 3, we are living in what is called the Laodicean church period. And I need to say this to you folks who are guests. If you're going to understand what is really happening and what we're seeking to glean from Revelation chapter 14, you do need to understand that the time period that we're living in right now is characterized and outlined for us in revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22 in the letter that was written to the church in laodicea there certainly was a historical context of that letter but in revelation 2 and 3 our lord writes seven letters to seven churches that literally existed in asia minor around 90 to 95 a.d the letter that he wrote addressed real specific needs that were going on in that church but In the context of the book of Revelation, those seven letters are seven periods of church history that are outlined for you through those letters that bring you all the way from where the book of Acts leaves off in the history of the church all the way up to the rapture which is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 right after the letter written to the Laodiceans. And so we right now are living in that period of time. We are a group of people that when you see the things that our Lord describes that is true of the believers in this period of time, what we will for the rest of the morning refer to as Laodiceans. And so in your mind, when you hear that word, just think in terms of believers in the last days. When you see what God says is true of his church in the last days, it is absolutely horrendous. He says, you're, you're not hot, and yet you're not cold. You're just lukewarm. And, and, and he says it's, I'm paraphrasing certainly, but it's like when you get a lukewarm cup of coffee. I mean, you put that... <laughs> he says, I want to spew you out of my mouth. It's sickening. He says, you, you, you think that you're one way. You're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And, he says, and you don't realize that you're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. You need to have your eyes anointed with eye salve. And he says, the, the, the bottom line on the thing is he says, I stand at the door and knock... Waiting for somebody that'll, that'll hear that Jesus isn't in the midst of the big celebration in the big room. And somebody that will, will stop and say, you know what? Let's let Jesus be Lord in his church. And that's where we're living in the Laodicean church period. Churches just like this one where people file in and pack the building out. And yet in many of them, Jesus isn't a part of anything that's going on. Because of the characteristics that are true of the Laodicean church period. So here's this group, the 144,000, that once we are removed and raptured and with the Lord in heaven, this group then becomes the group that God is going to use on this planet to carry His message to the ends of the earth. And like I said, what you see in Revelation chapter 14 and along with Revelation chapter 7, this group of people does it right. And what he does in chapter 14 is he begins to give us the characteristics of these people. What we're trying to do is is we're trying to to go to this group of people that did it right, and as Laodiceans who do it terrible, we're trying to look at this group and say, what can we learn from them that can help us with the responsibility that God has given to us in the last days of the church period? What we began to see is true of them is that there is, first of all, visible evidence of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. And we're going to have to do this real quickly if we're going to get the message. But all I want you to see is there is visible evidence that there is a connection that they have with the Father, and that is seen, first of all, through a seal that is given to them in their forehead. And in the, the tribulation period when the 144,000 are on this planet, what you find out in, in this passage is God has written his name, the name Jehovah, on their foreheads, and if you ever want to know who they're connected with, all you've got to do is just look at them. What we've begun to see is that God has given us a ceiling, and he's written some things, Second Corinthians says, not with ink on our foreheads, but he's written them in our hearts. And what the, the whole teaching that we've been seeing is that if we're truly born-again people, There's going to be visible evidence of it in our life. And if you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and there is no visible evidence, it's because you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, no matter what you claim. It's going to be visible. And we saw also that it's visible through their submission. And we've taken an awful long time on this. In the middle of verse 4 of chapter 14, it says, These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. I mean, this is a group of people that as they carried out God's plan on this earth, they followed the Lamb wherever he went. And the reward of that is when they are in heaven, you know what they do? They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. If you ever want to find a Lamb, all you got to do is look for the 144,000 If you want to know where the lamb is, just look for the big mass of people, because the lamb is right there. What we've begun to see is that Jesus talked to us about what it really means to be one of his followers. And the sad reality is, folks, in the Laodicean church period, based on what Jesus said following means, There are very, very few followers, true followers of Jesus Christ. And I wish I, I mean, this is the, the 12th time we've come at this thing of what it means to follow the Lamb. So, obviously, I can't, for you folks who are guests, I can't dial you in to all of that. But I do want you to know that in Mark chapter 8, why don't you turn there, Jesus gives an evangelistic invitation He's inviting people to come to him. And listen, when Jesus invites people to come to him, he, he does not make it simply a heaven and hell issue. Now, as Laodiceans, I've got to tell you, that's what we do. We stand before people and we talk to them about heaven and hell. And you see, that's where the whole thing starts getting clouded. When Jesus gave an invitation to people, he was inviting them to become his followers. He was interested in a relationship with them and you follow him in this relationship. And you see, what we've got all over the earth is people who have raised their hand in a service, signed a card, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, did some kind of a thing that they associated with what it meant to be born again, but they don't follow the Lamb. Jesus was interested in followers. And in Mark chapter 8, getting so dialed into this thing. I forgot to turn there myself. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. Jesus, said, or it says, and when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, whosoever will come after me. Okay, here's the evangelistic invitation. Whosoever will come after me. And here's the first prere- prerequisite. Let him deny himself, deny himself, and again, look around you in the Laodicean church period, show me where those people are, that have renounced self, following our own way, and then this morning, we're going to be talking about the second prerequisite not only must you deny yourself, but Jesus says in verse 34, and take up his cross. Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, number one, you must deny yourself, and number two, you must take up your cross. And I want you to listen now. If there's any teaching that is more hazily taught in the Laodicean church period than the truth of denying yourself it is this thing of taking up your cross did you hear what I just said in the Laodicean church period we don't like to talk about this and the sad truth is folks you can't hardly find anybody that will talk about what Jesus was saying here when he said take up your cross and I want to tell you why we don't teach this in the Laodicean church period I want you to go over to the book of 2nd Timothy with me for just a minute 2nd Timothy please listen so carefully to the things that that we're talking about here you remember when we were talking about the first prerequisite I'm having a hard time with that word this morning But when we were talking about that that, that first prerequisite, we came to this passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we saw that if we, as as Laodiceans, if we're really going to understand the full ramifications of what it means to deny ourselves, what we did, we came to this passage and we said, we're going to have to understand denying yourself Against the backdrop of a very key prophecy that our Lord gives us here in 2nd Timothy chapter 3 Concerning the time in which you and I live and he, he tells us in verse 1 that there's something that we need to know this know also Okay, and what is it that we we need to know? in the last days perilous times shall come And first and foremost, now what he's getting ready to do is he's getting ready to tell you why they're so perilous. And what he's getting ready to do is show you 20 different characteristics of the time in which you and I live that make these times so perilous. And the first one, above everything else, is found in verse 2. For, here's the reason they're so perilous. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And we've talked for weeks about the fact that loving yourself which is what God says right here, Laodiceans do, and denying yourself, which Jesus said is the very first prerequisite if you're going to be one of his followers, what we've been talking about for weeks is those two things are mutually exclusive. You cannot at the same time do both of those. You cannot love yourself and at the same time deny yourself. And we don't have time to beat that drum again. But, There's something else that's very key in this passage that has to do with the second prerequisite that you don't want to miss. Okay, not only did our Lord let us know that in these last days it would be perilous because men would be lovers of their own selves, but down in verse 4, he says that these last days are perilous because men love something else. Look at the middle of the verse. These last days are perilous, folks, because men are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Okay, now listen. If you're ever really going to understand the, the difficulty that we have in these last days of taking up our cross, you've got to understand that God said here in this passage that one of the overriding characteristics of the day and age in which you and I live is that believers... So-called Christians would love pleasure more than they would love God himself. And now listen, not only is loving yourself and denying yourself mutually exclusive and an absolute impossibility, listen, so is loving pleasure and taking up your cross. they're mutually exclusive you can't do both because now listen taking up your cross means difficulty not pleasure taking up your cross folks it means pain not pleasure taking up your cross means trial and affliction and suffering not pleasure taking up your cross means isolation and aloneness and weakness not pleasure taking up your cross means shame and humiliation not pleasure and the fact is folks if you love pleasure which God says Most of us do. You will not take up a cross. Again, the two are like oil and water. They're mutually exclusive. And yet Jesus said, without taking up your cross, without the cross being personalized and actualized in your life, Jesus said... You can't follow him. And what's so wild is that we're living in a period of time right now where there are literally millions of people who have convinced themselves that they're followers of Jesus Christ, but they carry no cross. And you see, the reason that we can think that, it's found in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. You don't need to turn there. But Jesus tells us why we can think that as Laodiceans. You know why we can think that? Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, he tells us about how we see things or how we, how we don't see things. And he says the problem that we have with seeing things in these last days, our problem is that we are, uh, what, we're we're blind, and you see, now, now listen, listen very closely, what blinds us to the fact that we carry no cross, what blinds us to the fact that the cross has never been personalized in our life, is that we've sentimentalized the cross. You know what I'm talking about here? We have a sentimental association with the cross. And we get warm fuzzies when we, when we talk about the cross. And you know what Laodiceans are prone to do in this sentimental association that we have? You know what we love to do? We love to sing about the cross, don't we? Because you know what? We, we get all sentimental and misty-eyed and teary-eyed. And, and you know what? As Laodiceans, we like that feeling. It makes us feel good. And when we sing about the cross, ah, I like that. You know, Laodiceans like to, to adorn themselves with crosses. And we wear crosses around our neck and wear them in our ears. And, and we like to have our emotions stirred at Easter time through dramatic productions portraying the cross. And we like to sit there and we, we like to see that, that whole thing. We hate it, but we love it because it makes us cry. And, and it makes us feel warm. And, and we like to decorate our church buildings with the cross. We'll put it on the front of the pulpit. We'll put it on the sides of the walls. We'll put it on the top of the steeple. We'll put it in our stained glass. And, and we've made our building spiritual with the cross. And we even like to talk about it. And, and, and the cross is this unbelievably sentimental thing As long as we're talking about a cross in the past. We just don't want anyone to face us in the Laodicean church period with the continuing role that the Lord Jesus Christ intended for the cross to have in our daily lives. You understand what I'm talking about here? In in Mark Chapter 8, where we just were a minute ago, and if you held a place there, you can look at it again. If you look at what Jesus said, the way that Jesus words this thing here is that the the cross is something that you, you come to him and take up at a point in time, but it's something you continue to carry with you as you follow him. And, and if you, you doubt that interpretation, would you turn over, now you got to Mark chapter 8, turn over to the parallel passage of this in Luke chapter 9, Luke's gospel, chapter 9, and check out verse 23, and he, as Jesus said to them all, if any man will come after me, here it is, it's, it's the parallel passage of what we've been talking about from Mark chapter 8. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what, daily and follow me. And folks, uh, I I just got to tell you, in some respects, Laodiceans know more about the Bible than any group of people that has ever existed in the entire annals of church history. And yet when it comes to this truth, Of taking up your cross and taking up your cross daily in the entire history of the church there's never been a group of people more clueless about what that really means than us we're so clueless we're not even suspicious And the fact is, this is probably the thing, above all things, folks, that makes us characteristic Laodiceans. We love pleasure. So we want no cross. And I'm telling you, folks, we desperately need just what our Lord told us in Revelation chapter 3, what Laodiceans need. You know what we desperately need him to do? We need him to anoint our eyes with eye salve so that we can see what he means about this whole thing of the cross and taking up our cross and following him. Now, I just want to tell you, over the next several weeks, we'll be talking about this, and if if you were going to get sick somewhere, it would be a good time to get sick. Because it ain't going to be fun for the next several weeks. And you know how we are as we and want, We want to have fun because we love pleasure. And I'm just telling you. It's going to be some tough stuff. But the good news is today, for the, most, for the rest of the time, it's going to be pretty nice. We're going to like it, and then we'll come back to reality at, at the end. Okay? But if we're going to understand this thing about the cross, first of all, we've got to understand the reconciliation of the cross. The reconciliation of the cross. For you folks that don't like the big words, it's R-E-C-O-N-C-I-L-I-A-T-I-O-N. Reconciliation. And turn, if you would, to the book of Colossians, chapter one. Now, actually, we, we could just as easily use the word salvation in the place of reconciliation. We could have said the salvation of the the cross, but I chose that. That term, because that's the term that Colossians chapter 1 uses in relation to the salvation provided by the cross. And that's the reason for the word. In fact, now, now what you find here, and kind of just get yourself to Colossians chapter 1. Let me just give you a broad sweeping overview of this thing of salvation. What you find in the Bible is that there's five terms that God uses to summarize what salvation actually is. Now, every one of these is a series in and We could take, I mean, hours and hours and hours to talk about each one of these. What I'm going to do is give you the word, give you a one-sentence explanation. We're going to go on. But it'll help you to understand what has actually been provided for us through the cross. Now, there are five words. The first word is the word justification. Justification. And in justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused, and is declared righteous that's justification the next word is redemption redemption and in redemption the sinner stands before god as a slave and is granted freedom by the payment of a ransom the sinner stands before god as a slave and is granted freedom by the payment of a ransom. That's redemption. The next word is the word forgiveness. And in forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, and the debt having been paid is forgotten. The fourth word is the word adoption. And in adoption, the sinner stands before God as a stranger and is made a son. Just a again, I wish we could preach on all of these, but a beautiful—all of these are just beautiful concepts. And then the last word is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. And in reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend as peace with God is made. And, and that's the, the concept of salvation that our, our Lord's describing here in, in Colossians chapter 1. And, and let, let me give you the context here so we can get flowing into this thing. In, in Colossians chapter 1, what, what God is inspiring the Apostle Paul to do here is to explain who Christ is. You see in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 16, he's the creator of all things Verse 17, he's he's before all things, and he's the one by whom all things consist. He's the one that holds all of the, the entire universe together. Verse 18, he's the one who's the head of the church. Verse 19, he's the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Okay, so that's the context. Here's who Christ is. And then in verse 20, he begins to show us now, based on who Christ is, he begins to show us what he's done. And verse 20... And having made peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, now now just stop there for a second and let me ask you something. Okay, look at verse 20 and let me ask you. If Jesus had to make peace, and it tells you what? That there was some kind of a, a war that was going on, right? And there is, folks. Here's the war. You see, God created Adam and Eve in in the garden. He entered into a personal love relationship with them. And God gave them a will. And he gave them the ability to exercise that will. And what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is rather than continue in the love relationship with God that they were created to have, they rebelled against God, and they chose the way of sin which is against God God. And you need to understand something, that when they made that choice, they didn't just have a little slip up. They, they didn't just make an, an unfortunate decision. What Adam and Eve did is they declared war against God. Drop down to verse 21 here for a second. He says, And you that were sometime, or at one time, watch this, you that were sometime... Alienated from God. Alienated means estranged, cut off, separated. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says that every single one of us in our lost condition, listen to it, every single one of us is dead. In trespasses and sins, and he goes on to explain that we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and that we are all in our lost condition, children of disobedience, and there is a spirit of disobedience that is upon us. In Ten verses later in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 Paul says that before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and were placed in Him, he says that we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, listen to it, having no hope, and without God in the world. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, it says that in our lost condition we were alienated from the life of God. God. The same concept Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 59 in verse 2. He says, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Now listen, folks. That was all of us in our lost condition. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, listen. I'm sure you're a wonderful person and I'm sure if I got the opportunity to hang out with you, I'm sure I'd like you. But as far as God is concerned, you're an alien from God. A stranger. In verse 21, look at it here, goes on. And enemies. I mean, this is is some heavy stuff here, man. And enemies in your mind by wicked works. You, You see, the wicked works all the bad things we do and all the bad things we say, you know what? They're all simply a result of what's going on in our mind. Right? Proverbs 23 and verse 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, it says that in our lost condition, our mind, listen to it, our mind is enmity against God. God. In other words, we're at war in our minds against God. And the thoughts that we have flesh themselves out, Paul says here in, in verse 21, those thoughts flesh themselves out in wicked works that we do. It comes into our mind and we flesh them out in what we do. So Paul shows us that we're, we're at war with God, which us to, causes us to be alienated from him. And through our sin, what we have done is we have made ourselves his enemies. And the need that we all have is the need to be reconciled. You see that word in verse 20 of chapter 1. You see it again in in verse 21. And, And what being reconciled means, listen to it, is to bring back a former state of harmony. To bring back a former state of harmony. Okay, now now listen. What is it, folks, that came between the harmony of our relationship with God? What was it? It was sin. That's the barrier that separates us from God. We chose to make God our enemy by choosing sin. And the question of all questions is, how is it that a sinful man can ever be reconciled with a holy God. And I want you to listen. That's the real issue that every single person on this planet must face. Listen, this morning, the the question isn't, what church do you attend? The question isn't, "What, what denomination are you? The question isn't, what, what label do you give yourself, or, or how religious are you, or how good are you compared to somebody else? The question of all questions, folks, is, have you ever been reconciled to God? The question is, what is your relationship with God? You say, well, well, how is a person reconciled to God? Okay, now listen to this very carefully. In the Bible, God laid down two very specific requirements for dealing with sin. Now, that's what keeps us from God. Okay? And God lays down in the Bible two very specific requirements for dealing with sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's, there's no forgiveness. There's no deliverance. Okay? Word remission translated that same way other places in our, in our Bible. Without the shedding of blood... There's no remission. In Leviticus chapter 4, when God was laying down the laws for the the sin offering, God said in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, He said, Bring a young bullock, listen to it, without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering and kill the bullock before the Lord. So check it out. God laid down two specific things that have to happen in order to deal with With sin. First of all, there must be the shedding of blood, and secondly, there must be the death of an unblemished sacrifice. And watch what he says here about what the Lord Jesus Christ did to reconcile us. Look at verse 20. And having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. And check out verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through what? Through death. Listen. In perfect fulfillment of the requirements that God established, God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. You know what he did? he became flesh and and blood why because without the shedding of blood there's no remission and so God in a human body of flesh and blood came to this planet and shed his blood and provided himself a sacrifice a perfect unblemished sacrifice listen, so that we might be reconciled to God. And Jesus shed His blood and laid down His life for us as a sacrifice for sin, where? On the cross. It is through the cross, and it's through the cross alone that we are reconciled to God. Listen. Our sin was that barrier that put us at odds with God. The cross is what brings us back. It bridges the divide between us and God and covers our sin. It's the cross. And watch how God continues this this teaching of the reconciliation of the cross over in chapter 2, right here in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 He says, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, now now, understand what he's talking about, that was in our lost condition before we were reconciled, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, we were dead, but he made us alive with him, having forgiven you all Trespasses. And you can see now, he's, he's describing the same principle that we just looked at in chapter 1, this thing of reconciliation. And watch how he illustrates for us what actually happened on the cross when Christ shed his blood and died for our sins. He, he says, look at verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You say, well, what what, what is all that all about? Now, now listen real carefully. The key to understanding the verse is understanding that phrase, handwriting of ordinances. Now, for most of us, uh, other than the Bible, you've never seen that phrase, and so we come to that thing, and it doesn't really pack with it a whole lot of meaning. But now listen, at the time when Paul wrote the book of Colossians to those believers there, they would have understood immediately the illustration. Because at that time, the handwriting of ordinances was something that the the Roman courts referred to as a certificate of debt. Okay, now now listen real carefully to this. This handwriting of ordinances was something that the Roman courts referred to as a certificate of debt. And, And what it was, was when a person would be convicted of some crime in a Roman court, the the scribe of the court would, with their handwriting, would write down a list of every crime for which that person had been convicted. That became the handwriting of ordinances that was against them. You got it? Okay? That became the certificate of debt, and that certificate meant that that prisoner owed Caesar a prescribed payment. And what would happen is then the prisoner, as the court would be dismissed, the prisoner would then take that paper, that handwriting of ordinance against him, and that paper would then be taken to them to where they would be imprisoned, and it would be nailed to the door of their cell because that's where they were making the payment for that thing and it would remain there until the sentence was carried out okay now look at verse fourteen again what he's saying here is that spiritually when jesus hung on the cross the handwriting of ordinances or the certificate of debt of every person who ever lived was nailed to the cross with christ And that handwriting of ordinances that was nailed to his cross, folks, listen. That handwriting of ordinances listed every single time you and I and every other person that has ever lived, it listed every single time that we would fall short of God's perfect law. It was a list of all of the things that we were guilty of, that were against us, that were contrary to us. It listed every sin that we would ever commit, whether it be in thought or word or deed or whatever. And you know why it was nailed to that cross? Because that's why Jesus was hanging there. It was because of our sin. And Jesus was there paying the penalty of our sin, so that we wouldn't have to. Now, historians tell us that in Roman law, when the, the prisoner had carried out the sentence, they would take that handwriting of ordinances, that certificate of debt, and they would write across it one word, the word to die. Give it to the prisoner, and he could never be punished for those crimes again. And check this out. That day at Calvary, just before Jesus bowed his head and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. You remember what he said? He said, it is finished. You know what it is? The same word that they wrote across the certificate of debt. To tell us, die. It is finished, paid in full. And you know what verse 14 is saying, y'all? Jesus took our certificate of debt that listed every single sin that we would ever in our lives commit, and He wrote across it with the blood of His cross, His own blood. It is finished, paid in full. And look at what verse 14 says. He took it out of the way and now we too will never ever ever be punished for our sins you know why because he took them out of the way they were nailed to his cross and with his blood the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from all sin and now that our sin has been removed we'll never be punished for those sins because we've been reconciled to god Our sin is settled forever in heaven with the blood of the only begotten Son of God. Man, that's what the cross is all about, y'all. That's the, the reconciliation of the cross. And now listen, if you will ever, 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 ever be reconciled, It won't be apart from the cross. It's an impossibility. That's where every single one of us, that's where we get in. And you know what, folks? It's not real culturally relevant. Because there ain't anything pretty about it. There ain't anything fancy about it. There ain't anything attractive about it. In fact, you know what? It's just it's downright hideous. It, it's, it's ugly. The book of Galatians says it's a cursed thing. It's cruel. It's shameful. It's disgusting. It's bloody. It's foolishness. That's what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Listen, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but now listen he goes on and he says but unto us which are saved that cross is the power of God listen it may be ugly it may be cruel it may be cursed it may be shameful and foolish as far as the world is concerned but it is the only thing that has the power to remove sin and reconcile us to God the cross you can't get away from the cross well let me explain something to you and this is small letter B the explanation of the cross you need to make sure that you understand what actually takes place when you come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the reconciliation of the cross now now listen The moment you come as a sinner to the cross of Christ, listen, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you're instantaneously, at that moment that you come, You are translated out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of His dear Son. Your sins that separated you from Him, those sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. You know what He does when you come to Him, to His cross? He takes your sin and in its place, you know what He gives you? He gives you His righteousness. And at that moment, instantaneously, you're placed in Christ and Christ is placed in you and then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and you are reconciled to God. But now listen, at that moment, the cross of Christ is That reconciled you. That cross that Jesus Christ himself carried. That cross on which he suffered. That cross on which he shed his blood and was the instrument of his execution. That cross becomes your cross. You take up his cross, and his cross becomes your cross. And bearing the instrument of your death, you now follow Christ. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to die a physical death because we follow Christ. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that that is what it meant for at least 50 million, 50 million of our brothers and sisters carried that cross in following Jesus Christ and it did mean their physical death. But it may not be the instrument of our physical death, but it is most certainly the instrument of the death, to self. You see, now that was our Lord's invitation. Way back in Mark eight thirty four. Remember where we started this morning? Here it was. Whosoever will come after me. Anybody wants to be saved? Let him deny himself. And the real proof that you've denied yourself is manifested in your willingness to take up your cross where self is crucified. Where self is executed. Listen. Taking up your cross means willingness to endure persecution. Taking up your cross means willingness to endure rejection and reproach And shame and suffering. Even martyrdom for His sake. And listen, when Jesus would have spoke those words in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, listen, the people that heard Him that day understood what He meant. Because listen, crucifixion in that culture was a common thing in, in that Roman Empire. Those people had seen a lot of them. One historian estimates that there were at least... 30,000 crucifixions that took place around the time when Jesus Christ was executed on a cross. And Jesus, to those people who understood in that Roman culture what that thing was all about, when He said, take up your cross, you know what they would have envisioned? They would have seen these poor condemned people marching down the road with at least the cross being the instrument of their own death strapped to their backs. That's what they would have seen in taking up your cross. That's what they saw. To them, that the cross meant you're walking toward death. And that's what the Lord is saying. You must see following Me as putting on the instrument of your own execution because it's a death to self. When you embrace Me... Because I am godliness and this world is ungodly. The world will cut you off. And you'll be a reproach. You'll be ridiculed. You may even have the privilege of laying your life down for Him who laid His life down for you. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about taking up your cross and following. And listen, like I said at the beginning, you don't hear anything about that in the Laodicea and age. I'm telling you, man, if people knew that, well, I'm just telling you, brother, people wouldn't come to Christ. So you know what we do? We make the cross palatable. We don't talk about pain, suffering. We don't talk about death we don't talk about this south thing because people won't respond to that in the Laodicean age and so you know what we do we present to them a false Christ because we invite them to come to Christ under false pretenses the, the issue is do you want to you go to heaven when you die now the, the option is you can go to hell and burn forever so which one would you like well what do I got to do just pray this sure and you know what you know why the days are so perilous? Because people think they're saved because they made a decision for Christ. The only problem is they weren't converted to Christ. And I'm going I'm to close this morning in just introducing this, this next point the nullification of the cross the nullification of the cross and and now listen that's where we are in Laodicea that's where we are in these last days and and let let me show you and we're going to hammer this next week and probably the next one and maybe the next but let me show you this over in First Corinthians chapter 1 man I'm telling you this is an incredible book y'all thank you would you check this out man First Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 Paul says for, for Christ sent me not to baptize but to preach I love that man but to preach the gospel, watch this, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect or nullified. And let me just tell you something. Let me tell you what's happened in Laodicea, y'all. Through the wisdom of words, we've learned to present the gospel in such a slick pass- package, man. That the cross of Christ, if it is mentioned at all, and that cross that you take up because of coming to His cross, we've so slicked that thing up that you can come and you can get your little salvation and go your merry little way and never even be faced with the fact that there is accounting of the cost before you embrace the cross. We've we got our we've got our church services so palatable in Laodicea that people can come in and they enjoy the show. Now I've told you before, it, it, it drives me cr- literally crazy when lost people go out of here and say that was wonderful. It's not wonderful if it's the cross. That cross divides. That cross brings you to a point of death. It brings you to a point of desperation. And yet, we're so busy in Laodicea trying to make people feel comfortable, and we don't want to, you know, make any—we don't want to rub anybody's feathers the wrong way. And we've learned that people in the Laodicean church period—they don't like words like sin. They don't like words like guilt and death and hell, and blood, and repentance. And so what we've done, since they don't like those words, we found words to replace them with. And you know what we're doing? Verse 17. Making the cross of none effect because we found stupid ways to explain it away with wisdom of words. And... Because people don't like to be preached to in Laodicea. That's why we almost live on an island here. We don't even understand what's going on around us. You know, there's the largest church in America right now, just in a suburb of Chicago. And what they found is that this is a generation of people who are very visual. If you went to the church this morning, you would not know it from a, a, a Hollywood or a New York theater. All of the bells, whistles, millions of dollars into the production. And you know what, what they do rather than, than preach? Now the guy will come out and hold a Bible in his hand and, and make the cross real palatable to the folks who just watched the show as they've, they've presented biblical truth. Now you know what? I'm all about being relevant to the culture. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, folks. Hello? The cross is none effect through our wisdom, with our lights and our little dramas and all that. And that's not to say that we'll never do a little, any little drama to teach a point around here. I'm just telling you. That's where we're at in Laodicea. And you know what? Since they're the largest church in America, you know what? Baptist. Churches are doing all over this country. Making pilgrimages to this church to sit at their feet and learn how they do this and go back to their church and take the Word of God, tuck it somewhere under, under some pile of trash somewhere and then start doing all the, the bells and whistles and the only problem is they don't have the money to do it right and so it stinks and, and the churches are falling apart. But I'm just telling you. You want to know why the last days are perilous? It's because there's no cross in Laodicea. Paul said, through wisdom of words, we make the cross of Christ of none effect. When it is the cross that is the very power of God, but the power of God that saves you is a power of that first slays you so that it can raise you to new life in Christ. But first, there's a death. And, and let me take the time this morning, and we'll be done, to read with you this little article written by A.W. Tozer and, and w- could I ask you to follow every word, don't, don't just blank out right now would you please follow every word all unannounced and mostly undetected there is come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles it is like the old cross but different. The likenesses are superficial. The difference fundamental. From this new cross has sprung a new philosophy of the Christian life and from that new philosophy has come a, a new evangelical technique, a new type of meeting and a new kind of preaching. The new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis not as before. The old cross would have no truck with the world. We don't use the word truck like this very often. It's it's bartering, exchanging commodities. For Adam's proud flesh, it meant the end of the journey. We're talking about the cross. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The new cross is not opposed to the human race. Rather, it is a friendly pal. And if understood aright, it is the source of oceans of good, clean fun and innocent enjoyment. It lets Adam live without interference, his life motivation is unchanged. He still lives for his own pleasure, only now he takes delight in singing choruses and watching religious movies instead of singing body songs and drinking hard liquor. The accent is still on enjoyment, though the fun is now on a higher plane morally, if not intellectually. The new cross encourages a new and entirely different evangelistic approach. The evangelist does not demand abnegation of the old life before a new life can be received. He preaches not contrasts, but similarities. He seeks to key into public interest by showing that Christianity makes no unpleasant demands. Rather, it offers the same thing the world does, only on a higher level. Whatever the sin-mad world happens to be clamoring after at the moment is cleverly shown to be the very thing the gospel offers. Only the religious product is better. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and insert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. The philosophy back of this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It is false because it is blind. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The old cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt Violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise, modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. The race of Adam is under death sentence. There is no commutation or exchange and no escape. God cannot approve any of the fruits of sin, however innocent they may appear or beautiful to the eyes of men. God salvages the individual by liquidating him. And then raising him again to newness of life. That evangelism, which draws friendly parallels between the ways of God and the ways of men, is false to the Bible and cruel to the souls of its hearers. The faith of Christ does not parallel the world, it intersects it. In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up onto a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. We who preach the gospel, and please don't relegate that to the people that stand up here. That's all of us. Amen? Amen. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We're not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life He offers is life out of death, it stands always on the far side of the cross. Whoever would possess it, and we're talking about life, must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself or reject himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. What does this mean to the individual? The condemned man who would find life in Christ Jesus? How can this theology be translated into life? Simply he must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing defend nothing excuse nothing and not seek to make terms with god but let him bow his head before the stroke of god's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die having done this let him gaze with simple trust upon the risen savior and from him will come life and rebirth and cleansing And power, the cross that ended the earthly life of Jesus, now puts an end to the sinner. And the power that raised Christ from the dead, now raises Him to a new life along with Christ. To any who may object to this or count it merely a narrow or private view of truth, Let me say, God has set his hallmark of approval upon this message from Paul's day to the present. Whether stated in these exact words or not, this has been the content of all preaching that has brought life and power to the world through the centuries. The mystics, the reformers, the revivalists have put their emphasis here and signs and wonders and mighty operations of the Holy Ghost, gave witness of God's approval. Dare we, the heirs of such a legacy of power, tamper with the truth? Dare we with our stubby pencils erase the lines of the blueprint or after the pattern shown us in the mount? May God forbid. Let us preach the old cross and we will know the old power. And I think we'd all agree that Tozer was a man with great insight into our culture, right? Listen. Uh, Listen before you get too far down the road. You know what's interesting about this? Tozer wrote this article in 1946. Fifty-three years ago, and let me just tell you, our stubby little Laodicean pencils have done a whole lot more erasing in the last fifty three years you know there was there was a day I just got to tell you when this this, this church thing for me as a pastor. It, it was all about big and all that. You know what? We we better just we better hang the big thing. We better start presenting a true gospel that includes a cross. You know what? This church has has seen growth. In the, in the last several years, but you know what? It's slow, I'll tell you. It's slow. It's probably the greatest thing we've got going for us. It is because it, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. You know what? Years ago, we used to come to the end of a service like this, and we'd stand, and musicians would play the right music on, stand before the group of people very eloquently find a way to draw the net to get people to step out of their seat and come make a decision for Christ and I just got to tell you, you better watch that wisdom of words with that whole thing because people come down and what what happens in Laodicea is it's almost like they come down and we spiritually inoculate them. They're surrounded with enough of the disease of salvation, if you will, so that they never really get it. Because they walk out the door, and because they prayed our prayer, they're on their way to heaven. And they never really were faced with the reality of what it means to come to Christ. You come to Christ with your sin. And that sin is what's keeping you from Him. (laughs) And have you ever checked it out, y'all, in the Bible? When people came to Him and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, why don't you just pray this little prayer right here. Put your hand in mine. I believe I'm a sinner. Come to my heart and save me. Hey, God bless you. Brother. Now that's the trash that goes on lay out of But Jesus, though, though, listen. Though salvation is the most simple thing in all the world. I mean, it is simple. There's no works involved in the deal. You just come and you go. I'm desperately in need of your salvation, and I know there ain't nothing that I can do to receive it. But I'm desperate because I understand my sin separates me from you and your God. (laughs) And so, in desperation, we come and we deny ourselves. And if it means taking up our cross, the only thing that we want is to follow Christ. That's what he's looking for. And if you're here today and you're outside of a relationship with God, my job is not to make Christ palatable or not to make the message one that will accommodate your little life no if you understand that your little life is heading you straight for hell because of your sin and you'd like to have that removed we invite you today to come to the cross of christ and die so that he can gloriously raise you to new life in him and listen that death that brings life is the most glorious thing in all the world and there ought to be somebody right now that would be willing to say amen to that Because we've all experienced that. That death brought us life. But without the death, there's no life. And if you'd like to receive Christ today, man, it's simple. Just come to the place to where you say, God, I'm bankrupt before you. And no, I can't bring anything to the table. So here, all I bring is me and my sin. And instantaneously, man, that sin is removed and you're reconciled to God. You find out why you were created. And that could happen for some of you folks here today. And I, I hope that there will be people today that will receive Christ genuinely. But my Laodicean brother and sister this morning, would you not give me, and we need the Lord to take a few weeks to just pound us a little bit about what it really means in this Laodicean age to take up our cross and follow him. And I hope that we'll leave here today and say it was good to be challenged. It hurt, but God, do do something in me to help me to follow you like the 144,000, whithersoever Thou goest, through pain, suffering. Cross bearing. Lord, help us. We we recognize that as Laodiceans, we are we are miserable. The more the further we go, the more we understand what you what you told us about ourselves. And Lord, I, I pray that. that you'd help us over the next several weeks help us to learn what it means to, to take up our cross so that we might genuinely follow you and Lord please be with the folks that are here this morning that have never been reconciled to you all the the, the truths that you showed us this morning from the book of Colossians. We rejoice in, in those truths, those of us that know you. But Lord, today we're depending on you to take those truths to the hearts of people that have never experienced them. And Lord, may this be the day that they are brought back into that harmonious relationship with you through the blood of your cross. Through Jesus Christ, as our sin is removed and we're reconciled to you. Lord, do that miracle in the lives of people in this room today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.